great Scott. Are you a sports fan who loves to have a good laugh? Oh, yeah. Then you're in the right place. I'm going to make him an offer again. Life moves pretty fast. Welcome to the Man Cave Chronicles. Welcome to another episode of the Man Cave Chronicles podcast, a podcast of talk culture where everyone has a story. My guest today, well, you've seen him in everything. Batman, Good Morning Vietnam, Arliss, Bull Durham. I can keep going with this list. My guest, Robert Wall. Robert, welcome to the cave. Hello. Hello, how are you? Good, how you doing? I'm doing okay. Yeah. How are, uh, how are things with you? How's uh, 2018 treating you? It's been okay. It's, the world is miserable, but it's been miserable everywhere. So uh, it's very bizarre, this, this so-called spring so far. Yeah, I mean, I woke up today. It was all ice outside. Yeah, it's pouring here. It's just, it's been. I mean, yesterday was it Sunday afternoon? No, Saturday afternoon it was seventy degrees. Yep. By Saturday night it was like thirty-eight. <laughs> I know. I was outside playing with my kids, and it was all you know, setting up soccer nets and all that stuff, and putting things away yesterday. So, um, you were born in New Jersey. How was it growing up there? Loved it. Loved it. Uh, had a great life. Very, very fortunate. I had a great. I grew up in suburbia, New Jersey. Had great parents. Um, I went to a really in the good schools and uh, uh, in Union, New Jersey, which I, I which I liked, but I couldn't wait to get out of. But uh, I had a great time growing up. My I, just, I did all the normal things pretty much. You know, I played a lot of softball and then ba- basketball and football, and uh, I just enjoyed sports a lot. Enjoyed theater. Um, I was very fortunate. My parents exposed me to a lot of stuff, and uh, I was very fortunate. Terrific childhood. Yeah. What made you wanted to get out of New Jersey? Well, I wanted to be in show business, you know, and that yeah. wasn't going to happen in New Jersey. And I wanted Los Angeles and New York, and uh, you know, so that's what I always wanted. Yeah. What made you pursue in acting and uh, in comedy? Well, actually, I wanted to be a writer and director, but I didn't, I didn't know how to do that back then. So I went to first. I had to go to college, and I went to college at the University of Houston in Texas because they accepted me, which I didn't have great grades, and um, and there was a war going on, to be perfectly frank. And I had to go to college, so uh, I went down there, and I really enjoyed it. And I crammed four years into seven. I loved school, but I hated class. And, but I made great friends down there, and I participated in um, in uh, the latter part of my. I was in the drama department. I was always involved in intramural sports and dorm activities and everything. And then I came back uh, after, like I said, after seven years, uh, I came back to New Jersey and started auditioning and going to the comedy. This is when the comedy clubs just opened up. Yeah, it was just when when well they had they had been open for a while, but they were kind of getting a boom then because of. Guys like David Brenner and Freddie Prinz and Robert Klein. And uh, so the improvisation and Catch a Rising Star. And I thought that, and Saturday Night Live was just starting up. It started within a year or two. And so I thought this is a way for me to segue into what I want to do. You know, because Woody Allen had been a stand-up comic. Mel Brooks had been a stand-up comic. Uh, you know, so I, I did that and I started writing. I started, you know, writing jokes and performing it, and I sold a couple of jokes to Rodney Dangerfield, which gave me a leg up, and uh, and that's how I got started. Yeah. Do you uh, do you remember the first time you performed? Yes. How, how did that go? Yeah. Um, not bad actually. Uh, it was pretty good. 
it was at the Livingston Y. I learned, you know, and uh, it went pretty good. It, it went pretty good. Uh, good enough for me to do it again. And, and, uh, and you learn. And, you, of course, you're always doing somebody. When you first go on, you're probably doing – so I was probably doing a little Rodney, a little Woody Allen, because you're emulating the people you like yeah. until you find your own voice, until you find your own voice. And uh, But I moved – you know, I got in and it was, I became a part of a – um, a group of comics at that time and my class, so to speak, was people like Larry David, Jerry Seinfeld, Keenan Wayans, Paul Reiser, uh, George Wallace. Uh, we had good people there. And the class before us had been like Jay Leno and Elaine Boozler and Andy Kaufman. So we had good, and it was tough. It was really tough because there was only two or three places you could work for nothing, basically. And you had to be pretty good because it was like 50, 60 comics maybe. And, you know, there was only like ten spots, so you better be good. Yeah. Um, yeah, and just and it was just starting to you know explode. Then Robin comes loose. Rob within a year, Robin Williams comes on, and uh, so I was fortunate to be a part of that 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 whole wave. Yeah. How did you transition from like working in the comedy world? Like you decided one day you, you wanted to like pursue more of acting. Well, I had an acting background. I, I was in the drama department. And I had great teachers. My, my acting department in Houston had uh, Dennis, Dennis Quaid was my classmate. Randy Quaid uh, was before me. Cindy Pickett, a guy named Brent Spiner, who starred in 1776 on Broadway. A great acting teacher. We had a great acting program. Uh, with a te- oh, Jim Parsons came later. But uh, the, uh, Houston had a really good, he had a great acting teacher, a guru named Cecil Pickett, who was known as the Strasburg of the South. And he was just terrific. You know, guys like Tommy Schlamy and Tommy Toon and, uh, great people worked with him. So he was a really true. So I had a great uh, a background in, in acting because I had taken classes from this guy and I had done school. For, I was always acting in school productions or in, or in shows down there. You know, if it was, I was at the Astro World and doing the uh, medicine show. So I'd always acted. Yeah. And then, so when the acting opportunities arise, I had a big leg up on a lot of comics because I had an acting background. Wow. So, um, and that's the night when I went to Los Angeles. That segued into the Hollywood Nights, basically, which was my first movie. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. How was it working with uh, Tony Danza in that movie? It was great. I mean, nobody knew anybody. I mean, this yeah. was all our first movie. Correct. Tony had started Taxi. Tony had started Taxi, but everybody was Michelle Pfeiffer's first movie. It was mine. Tony Danza, a great character actor, Gaylord Sartain. Uh, this is. Uh, um, Oh, now I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Stuart Pankin, uh, a lot of terrific people. Fran Drescher uh, were in that movie. So that was a great, um, I mean, there was a lot of it was improvised, I'll tell you that. So that was was fine with me. So that was a lot of fun. You know, I got walked out there and suddenly I'm one of the leads in a movie. That's pretty easy work. But it didn't work out quite that way. (laughs) And not a lot of people could say that back then. Well, you know, I, I figured for sure, oh, this is easy, but it doesn't work that way. Yeah. When I didn't get another part for like four or five years. Yeah, but then from there you went on to, you know, like Good Morning Vietnam and Bull Durham and Batman. Yeah, that, but, that, but that's about six, seven years. That one was ten years late. Yeah. You so, know, that, there's a big, big gulf in there. Now, at the time, I was always writing. Okay. I was always writing. I started out as a writer. And um, I had auditioned for Airplane okay. for the Zucker Brothers. Yeah. And I didn't get the part, but they hired me to be a writer on Police Squad. So I wrote on Police Squad, which was a short-lived TV series on ABC, starring Leslie Nielsen, which eventually became the Naked Gun series. Uh, But I worked for them, and I had a little bit part in Flashdance, 
and but I was always on the road then doing stand-up comedy to you know to make money. Yeah. And then uh, yeah, then Barry Levinson. But what happened? What changed was first was getting a, a role in the Madonna video, Material Girl. Uh, there was a part. There was a beginning of the video. There was a scene between me and Keith Carradine that was 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 good. It just started the video, and that opened you know that opened some doors, and then. Then again, Barry Levinson, good, who, who I auditioned for for Diner, and uh, he cast me in Good Morning Vietnam, and then Bull Durham happens right. That's 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 for about eighty seven, eighty eight, yeah. and that's when stuff happens. You know, that's when it starts to really. And then Batman comes in eighty eight. Yeah. How was it working with uh, Robin Williams in Good Morning Vietnam? I mean, that that movie no, is like one of my it. favorites. Well, I knew Robin from the clubs, and it was yeah. so it was like we had known each other. We were friendly, you know, we were friends, so. That was great. I mean, it was a great experience being over there, and between everybody there, between Robin and the great late Bruno Kirby, um, and it, it was terrific. It was hot, but it was it was Robin had not done well in movies before then. But this was a vehicle that was just so designed for him, and Barry was the right guy to direct it, and the story was good, and they let Robin improvise, and, and it's a really well-made movie. Um, they've been playing it a lot on cable lately, I understand. And I ask people if it held up, and they say, yeah, it holds up pretty good. So, um, and of course, to watch Robin now. Now, Robin was special. You know, you come across a few special people in your life, and Robin Williams is one of them. He was as uh, a good a guy, a good a human being, as, uh, as as great a talent as he was. He was very special, very special. I miss Robin. Yeah, and he was, of course, he's one of the best for a stand-up comedy too. <clears throat> yeah, he was pretty good. Yeah. Um, I know you're a huge baseball fan. How excited were you when you got cast for Bull Durham? Oh, that was great. I mean, Bull Durham was a blast. Uh, I gave, Ron Shelton said I gave what may be the worst single audition in history, and he said hire him immediately because I was all over the place. The character didn't have many lines. He only had like four or five lines in the whole script. Yeah. And so, actually, I, could, I can credit a lot of my career to that to Bruno Kirby because we had just done, I just, we had done Good Morning Vietnam together, and I called him up. And he was my acting guru occasionally. And I'd say, Bruno, here's this pitching coach. And uh, what's the character? And he goes, well, it seems to me that the pitching coach is the adjunct of the manager. If the manager moves up, he moves up. So, you know, so I said, okay, I got it. He's a yes man. So I could do, my dad had played ball and was an athlete. So I knew all the jargon of the hum baby, come on, no matter, no matter, that kind of stuff. So I just, I went in there and, just you know, took the room and just uh, just was all over the place. No batter, no batter. Hey, hey, hey. And I started just doing all this stuff. And thank God they hired me because it was horrible. Yeah. You know, and Ron Smith, the worst audition I've ever seen. In fact, the casting director apologized for bringing, in, for bringing me in. And then Ron said, great, hire him immediately. Because <laughs> I need that. Right? What he's going to bring is going to be a different dimension. Wow. You know, so. Yes. And plus, it's a terrific movie. Bull Durham is a really yeah. good, good movie. Yeah. I mean, that's... They're, that's one, you know, like I said. What was that? That's one to be proud of. One to be proud of. Oh yeah, I mean, there's there, there's a lot of baseball movies out there, but you know, there's only like top three or four that hold out to me. That's one of them. What? Um, yeah, I would agree. What? Um, so you got casted in Batman. You know, that was uh, one of the biggest like movies in the late '80s. How was it being in something like that? Dynamite. It was great. It was great. You were, we shot it in London. It was the highest budgeted movie of all time at that point. I mean, you had Jack Nicholson. Uh, you had at his peak. You had Michael Keaton coming off of Beetlejuice. You had 
this, you had Tim Burton coming off of Beetlejuice, and you had this amazing set and this designers, and it was pretty, and it was dark. People forget how dark the original yeah. Batman. They were always, they had only you know they were trying to compare it to the Adam West Batman, which I did not like because it was too jokey. You know, this was a darker take on Batman, uh, not as dark as the Dark Knight, which is I think that's generational though. I think that. The dark. I just think everything went much darker after 9/11. I just think apocalypse. I mean, I, I once asked a class of students, uh, "Why are there so many apocalypse movies?" And he answered me, "Well, you know, we all grew up after 9/11, so it's." Not, and I thought, "Well, that's an interesting point." Hmm. Uh, but uh, I would personally, I. The thing about the Batman movies is, with well, especially that that series of Batman movies, the, uh, the starting with the Tim Burton one is that every hour of the Batman series, I think it was like five movies there, got continually worse. It was like the first hour, the first Batman movie's really good. The second hour is pretty good. Then you have the next Batman, the one with uh, uh, Danny DeVito, and that's uh, okay. Yeah. And the next second hour of that one is like, uh, okay. And then it starts getting really crappy. Then you got the George Clooney one, and you got the Val Kilmer one, and you got, they start getting really crappy. And until the new wave came with the Dark Knight. The thing about the Dark Knight series, to, from my taste, and this is strictly my own humble opinion, is there's no question of the artistry involved. I don't think they're any fun. I don't find, I mean, again, it goes back to the darker tone. Yeah. Um, I don't find them fun. You know, where, where Tim Burton was whimsical. He was still fun. Yeah. That's my take, and I'm older. Yeah. So that's an older generational talk. Yeah. So. I, I agree with that. I, like I said, I remember going to the movie theaters to see that when I thought it was, you know, gr you know, fantastic for its time. Um, so how did you come up with the idea for Arliss? I was approached by HBO, <clears throat> who I'd done a bunch of work with. Uh, if I was in, they, uh, Mike Tolan had come up with an idea, a producer, and he had come up with an idea for doing a, Spinal Tap of Sports. Spinal Tap had opened up, and he wanted to do a Spinal Tap of Sports, a parody of sports stuff. So HBO, they told him to talk to me, because I had done work with HBO, I had a relationship with HBO. And I thought, well, I've seen the Spinal Tap of Sports on the Muppets, the Spinal Tap of Wimbledon, and stuff like that. I said, what I'd like to do is I'd like to do a mini-series of satire on the world of sports as told through the eyes of a self-serving sports agent. Sports agents were just barely coming into the, the, the spotlight um, because of like Brian Taylor signing with the Yankees and you heard about sports agents suddenly coming into it and um, uh, and uh, there had been some shenanigans of people paying people under the table. And I thought I could, what's funny is I used as my template the art of the deal, the Trump book. Because I, I see, if you look at the Arliss show, it's, if you look at the cover of the book, Arliss, and it comes out of a book, it's the Trump book. It's, 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 it's Arliss, the Artemis Sports Super Agent. Yeah. Because I always thought back then, this is, 90, what is it, 95, 96, I thought Trump was full of shit back then. Yeah. Because I didn't believe a thing in this book. But I said, he's spinning it his way. So I said, that's what I'll do. I'll spin it Arliss's way, at least in the beginning. And so we decided to do that. And then we realized that for it to become a business model, it had to be more than a mini series. It had to become a series. And that's how it came about. And, uh, that was on for what, six years, seven seasons, seven seasons. Yeah. And, uh, did you enjoy every minute of that? 
Yeah, with a lot of work, but yes, absolutely. That kind of reminds me a little bit of like, did, do you think like the movie Jerry Maguire took the idea from you? No, no, they were going on at the same time. Okay. They were totally going on at the same time. Not at all. Yeah. Jerry Maguire, we started, we came on in, uh, I think 96, 97, 98, 99, 99. I think we came on in 96, like in the, I'm guessing, I don't even remember. I'll say the late spring of 96. And Jerry Maguire came out in the summer of 96 or stuff like that. Yeah. So, no, it's, it's no, not at all. The Man Cave Chronicles on Twitter at the MCC Podcast. We'll be right back. Rotoware.com. Rotoware. Big shout out to the Rotoware uh, company. It's so goddamn comfortable. Can't recommend them enough, man. Yeah. High quality t shirts. Shout out to Rotoware.com. You see me rocking the shirts on the videos and stuff like that. Where'd you get that? Rotoware. That is courtesy of Rotoware. It's just it's just the highest quality of shirts. Yeah, I really like the baseball designs you got here. The shirt is beautiful. Everybody who I've talked to who has the shirt basically says they can't believe how good the quality is. Yeah, kid, I've seen you've been getting a lot of love. You said you've been only running for a little over a month. I- CBS guys are tweeting out shirts. I'm seeing fantasy personalities everywhere digging this guy's shirt. I love the Run DFS shirt. It comes with the baseball cards with all the different shirts on it. Rotoware on Twitter. Check out rotoware.com. Oh my God. Is this, is this shirt making love to me right now? Like, what's going on? I love this shirt. Hey, this is Keith Coogan, uh, Brad, and the Adventures of Babysitting, Kenny in downtown on Babysitter's Dad. And you're listening to the Man Cave Chronicles podcast. Not at all, never. So I know that you're you're a big history buff. Uh, what was that one yeah. man? You did a one man show called "Assume the Position" with Mr. Wall. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. I wanted to do something after Arliss. I went to HBO and said, you know, I think there's a way to do a history history thing that would might be funny and 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 then really informative and have a lot of fun with. And they let me do this thing, so. Uh, and it turned out pretty damn well. We uh, we shot it at NYU, and it was basically, you know, history as pop culture. And it's to probably to this day, it's the best received thing I've ever done. As far as, you know, I got Writers Guild nominations, and I get it all the time. They study it in China, which amazed me. They had a, these, these students studying the thing in China. Um, uh, that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that a lot. We did two of them. I was going to do a third of them, but the, owner, the um, management changed at HBO, and so it kind of found a home. Yeah. So, but I enjoyed that a lot. Do you think if you weren't in the acting business, you would have became like a professor or a teacher? Perhaps. I mean, uh, I, I might have become a travel agent, or, or, or I would like to got into the front office of a baseball team actually back then. Yeah. But it had to be a big market. <laughs> I would like. To, um, I don't know. Right, some, the teacher at least you perform some. I did do substitute teaching for a while. I was a very popular substitute teacher. Yeah. So, um, but, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would enjoy that. Yeah. But the thing is like when, when people came up to me, I assumed the position said, boy, if I had a teacher like you, I would have learned a lot. And I always remind them if you had a teacher like me, I'd probably be thrown out of school because uh, somebody would, somebody would complain, somebody would complain to their parents about what I was teaching. <laughs> so you I mean, you've had an amazing career. Like what's the, like the most proudest thing you achieved? Just the, the, the whole of who, the, the whole thing. I don't have any. You know, I enjoyed pretty much, I mean, I really enjoyed Arliss. I enjoyed Assume the Position. I enjoyed all the movies I did. Um, uh, I did the people I've worked with, people I've learned from. Um, uh, I, I can't say anything one specific. Yeah. I, I don't know. You know, I just, I just took the, the whole entirety of it, you know. Yeah. So, so I know you've written uh, with Billy Crystal and you won two Emmys. How was it with that? 
that was another great moment. That was something else. We worked on the uh, first. He saw me in a club. Actually, this was during the lean years. When I, I, I was doing the lean year, uh, I was doing stand-up, and I got a, uh, an opportunity. My manager was Carl Reiner's uncle, even though he was considerably younger than Carl. But he was Carl Reiner's uncle, and he, Carl's wife, uh, Estelle Reiner, had a cabaret act. And so Carl was looking for a comic to open for him, uh, open for her in a local club. So he said on my tape, <clears throat> Carl said, yeah, him. <clears throat> and I went on. I didn't even know if I wanted to do it. Uh, but again, I did it. And in the audience the first night was everybody from Mel Brooks and Ann Bancroft and Chris Guest and Rob Reiner and everybody. And there was Billy, uh, Crystal and Janice. And so I had known Billy's manager for quite a while, David Steinberg. And when Billy got his chance to, uh, he got offered a host of Grammys, they called me and said, would you like to work with Billy on this? I said, sure. So uh, we started our relationship. We did the Grammys for, I think, three years, two years, three years. And then we segued to the Oscars, which I did the first three years. And it was just me and Billy the first year. I mean, nowadays I got 15 writers, but yeah. it was just me and Billy. And then, then Bruce Valance joined us. And also Mark Shaman helped with all the, uh, the musical stuff. The, uh, but it was just us. And we did that for three years. And that's the Jack Palantir and everything else. And then I started to do Arliss, so I wasn't available for the next uh, couple of years. But I love that. The great thing about doing the Oscars is that for better or worse, your work's going to be seen because you do a lot of work in our business and a lot of people don't see it. Now it's better now because you have, you have, you know, you can DVR it or you can, you know, get it on Netflix or whatever, but back then you couldn't. So with rare exceptions, uh, but at least you knew people were going to watch the Oscars, so they're going to judge you the next day. And so we worked very hard at that, and it was great. I, I loved it. We, like I said, I, I have two Emmy Awards because of Billy Crystal. So I know you said uh, you're calling from New York, and uh, from what your uh, publicist said to me that you're doing a play out there. What is the play that you're doing out there? Well, I'm actually uh, I'm calling from New York, but we're doing a play in the, paper, the famous Paper Mill Playhouse in Millburn, New Jersey, which I grew up five minutes from. Uh, I'm doing, we're doing the musical version of The Sting, the great old uh, Paul, Paul Newman, Robert Redford movie with uh, Harry Connick Jr., who is just a great guy in every stretch of the imagination, artistically and, and personally. And we're doing it out there for a pre-Broadway engagement, you know, getting all the kinks out and uh, tightening it up. It's like spring training. It really is. Yeah. Um, and it's preseason. But, you know, and people, audiences are really liking it. And it, But, it's, you know, it's, we're, we're working it out, and it's going to be very, it's very good now. It's going to get a lot better. Yeah. How, um, how long you been there? Well, we started rehearsals in February, mid-February, and we moved to the paper mill. We had our preview started March 29th, and we mm -hmm. end August 29th with the performances. So we have two more weeks to go. So now, lastly, I know you're a huge baseball fan. What are your thoughts this year? Well, um, what are my thoughts? I, I, well, it's very early, but Boston has a very, very, very good ball club, a very complete ball club, more so than the Yankees. Yeah. Uh, I, I, everybody was, you know, touting the Yankees, and the Yankees have a good ball club. But, uh, you know, they got, from my taste, it might be too many. They have too many guys who swing and miss. Too many guys. You can't win with a team that's, you know, striking out ten times a game. The, uh, I mean, when people say, oh, look at the power, I go, well, wait a minute, the Red, they out-homered the Red Sox by 15 home runs last year, and the Red Sox beat them by five games. Yeah, yeah they, they, the Yankees got hot during the playoffs, and Cleveland crumbled, but you can't count on that. The Red Sox have a more complete team. They have a more, you know, better starting rotation. 
and um, I think they're a more complete team. They can they can manufacture a run. I don't see the Yankees doing much of that. Yeah. Um, as far as that, the surprise team here's the Mets so far. I know. The Mets, well, here's, well, the Mets first of all, as you have to be, they've been relatively healthy as any team has to be. Uh, they've lost a catcher, but he's not a big integral part of their team. But the pitching's been outstanding. Now, we always knew the Mets had great talent, but could they stay healthy? And so far they are, and so far they've been pretty damn good. And they're winning close games. You know something I saw, for example, the Yankees? I, Chapman, Rose has two saves. That's it. He's got two saves for the year, which tells me the Yankees are either winning 10 nothing or they're losing the, the, the games where they're, where they're close. And that's what I'm talking about as far as manufacturing runs are coming from behind. Yeah. Uh, the Mets have been very good at getting timely hitting. Uh, it will, they're unfortunate the Nationals have got off to a slow start. So they've been interesting. Uh, both teams have new managers, as do the Red Sox. Um, I think, let's see, in the Central, I think that'll be a right. I still think Cleveland's going to win. Yeah. Uh, Minnesota is, is a promising team. The, in the West, well, in the West, you have Houston for sure, but the Angels sure are exciting. I mean, the Otani factor has changed oh a my lot God. of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's changed a lot of stuff that, you know, and it's not just Otani that, you know, it's like Trout now has a Justin Upton hitting behind him. you got Ian Kinsler and Zach Cozart. Yeah. And the fact that they're on a six-man rotation, which allows Otani to pitch one day a week. See, here's the thing. If, you're, if you don't win your division, like I, I tell my my my, God, my goddaughter actually works for the Yankees. If you don't win your division, that means you're placing your season in a one-game playoff where you're either going to face you're either going to face Verlander, Otani, or Berrios of, of Minnesota. Yeah. That's you don't want to be in that position. I agree because that's what you're looking at. That's what you're looking at if you don't win your division mm-hmm. in the National League. Um, uh, the, I still expect the Dodgers to do well. I'm not on the, as much on the bandstand as everybody else. Chicago, I still believe, will, at the end of the day, probably win the division. But that's a good division. Pittsburgh's been a surprise, a huge surprise. Yeah. I'm glad because my uh, manager's from Pittsburgh, and I have a deep fond. If you had never been to that ballpark, PNC Park, go. Yeah. That my, That's probably the prettiest ballpark in all of baseball. That park is outstanding. Yeah. That's a great ballpark. That one in San Francisco are the two – not counting Camden, you know, which is the original. And I'm taking Fenway and Wrigley in another category. But out of the, out of the generational ballpark, PNC is gorgeous and small. Uh, but Pittsburgh's doing well. Um, that should be a pretty good race because Milwaukee's got a pretty good club. You know, Cincinnati's out of it. Uh, and in the East, Atlanta's better. But I don't know if they'll contend. So I think it's still the Mets and the Nationals. Uh, so that's the way I'm looking at it right now. You know, I'm just watching those teams because a lot of teams. Are, and then, of course, that's the teams now are not the teams that you're going to see in August, September. Because the Yankees aren't going to be the same team. You know, they're going to make big resource moves. Yeah. And, you know, Boston's not going to be the same team necessarily. Dodgers won't be. Cubs, you know, so they have resources. Yeah. That's the advantage of, of big market teams. I mean, last year they talked about the parity. But meanwhile, the last four teams were Houston, you know, Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago. So it's the four biggest markets in the country. Yeah. So, you know, so when they talk about parity, you know, well, let's take a step back here and look at it. What did you – I know you're a huge Yankees fan. What did you think of the Aaron Boone uh, signing? I'm a baseball fan. I don't, don't, I'm not a Yankee. I'm a Yankee fan because – here's why. 
I'm a Yankee fan because I live by a motto that says life is always better when the home team wins. I grew up being a Yankee fan yeah. because I was a kid and it was male Maris time. But uh, I root for the Angels. I root somewhat for the Dodgers, less so. Uh, I root for the Mets, too. So I want life is better when the home team wins. Everybody's happier. Yeah. And I don't mean just in sports. I mean in business, in politics, in family. Life is better when the home team wins. Yeah. So it's better. Everybody feels better about themselves. Everybody's in a better mood. Uh, the Aaron Boone signing, it's a – uh, what did I think? I thought it was out of the box for sure. And then again, you look at it, is it out of the box for today's thinking? I don't think baseball's changed that much. I, I, I get into constant debate with my friend Brian Kenny on all this sabermetric stuff because there's no doubt the statistics sabermetrics are important. But it's a tool. That's all it is. You're not playing fantasy baseball. Yeah. This is real. I mean, for example, when according to, to wins above replacement, that stupid stat, um, Luis Valbuena is better than Albert Pujols. That's absurd. Yeah. That's absurd. And I go, but Pujols has averaged 100 RBIs the last four years. People don't realize this. He's averaged 100 RBIs. He's like fifth in the – and Saber Mitchell will say, yeah, but he's got trout in front of him and so on and so I go, wait a minute. Home runs and RBIs count. On-base percentage doesn't count. There's no – when I look at the, when I look at the, the, the scoreboard, on-base percentage is not on the line score. A run counts. Yeah. An RBI counts. A home run counts. On-base percentage wins above replacement does not count. No. It's like, don't lose sight of this fact. I watched yesterday, in 11 games, I was look, talking this over with somebody, how the bullpen either blew a ball game or put or came close to blowing the ball game in 11 games because they take the starter out after five innings. No. You can't ask bullpens to hold four innings a game and do that consistently. No. You can do that in the World Series, maybe, because it's a short series. And everybody's gaffed because nobody, nobody's pitched, everybody's pitched too many innings. Yeah. But you can't do that during a season. I'm sorry. This whole idea of – it's a tool. Don't get me wrong. It's a tool. It's a tool to be learned. But you're not playing fantasy baseball. Yeah. You still have to manufacture runs. You have to do things that don't show up in the box score. Yeah. Do that. That's my feeling anyway. Yeah, I remember, like, growing up, you know, I was watching these pitchers pitch, you know, they would go seven, eight innings. It's like, what happened to all that all of a sudden? Nine. Nine innings. Nine. nine. In, yeah, you're right. Even nine innings, yeah. Now they can... Jack Morris, Roger Clemens. Yeah. Come on. These guys went nine. Verlander's a throwback to that. Yeah. You got a guy who goes five innings. I mean, I mean, I've heard this. Quality stat. Here's a quality start. Stupidest stat ever. Yeah. Um. I mean, six innings, three in runs is a quality start. Why is that a quality start? That's a four-and-a-half ERA. That's saying that the bullpen doesn't give up any runs, yeah. by the way. So you're pitching two-thirds of the game. You're giving a pitch into a four-and-a-half. You're not going to win many games in a four-and-a-half ERA. Yeah. You're not going to win. You're, you're not a championship club. You won't make the playoffs. So why is that a quality start? Let me, I say, let me ask you a question. If you had a pilot in an airplane who went two-thirds of the, two-thirds of the flight and said, okay, I'm turning it over to another guy. It's like that ain't that good. <laughs> you know, it's a, yeah. that is such a stupid stat. It's and not saying the bullpen's going to be perfect, which they're not. I agree. Yeah, that's it's yeah. just I just yeah. ugh. you have to have a deep bullpen, no doubt, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. But you can't six innings. Most teams would settle for six innings now. Yeah. I know you mentioned fantasy baseball. Do you play that? Yes. Yeah. How many uh, leagues are you in? I'm in one and in last place as we talk. I'm in three, and yesterday, all those rain delays yesterday killed me. 
Yeah, I mean, I only play in one league. I used to play in more. I used to be in celebrity leagues and the Sirius XM host league. And I only go to my one league, you know, which I've been in forever. Um, because I like the league. I like the categories they use. Um, you know, they don't use any gypsy categories, as I call them. Yeah. I mean, we don't count strikeouts. I think strikeouts are really overrated. No. Um, we count innings pitched, which is funny because now I see more and more. Innings pitched is much more important. Much more. What, I mean, what's more important? Because we try to emulate real baseball. What would be more important? A guy who comes in and strikes out six guys but only goes four innings, or a guy goes seven innings and strikes out two. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, strikeouts is, 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 is just, I think it's a, full, it's a secondary category. Outs. I agree. You know, outs. Yeah. Um, and the whole idea that a strikeout, from an offensive point of view, that a strikeout is an out is an out is not true. If you strike out, you have advanced, you have helped your team in no way, shape, or form. If you get an out and you get a ground ball that moves a runner over, a fly ball, or you move something around, or whatever, and that changes the game. Yeah. A strikeout does not help your team whatever. No. You know, so. Right. Uh, yeah, you're going to have, you know, so that's, that's what I feel. But right now, I'm in last place. My pitching staff has been terrible, which is usually the case when, you have a, when you're in last place. My offensive, my, you know, my guys have all underperformed so far. It's very early. Altuve, yeah. Travis Shaw, Scope goes on the DL, <clears throat> Jay Bruce, Will Myers on the DL. So, you know, I also have Trout. You know, so I got a pretty good offensive club. Yeah. I have, you know, and, and DD's been my best player. <clears throat> I love Didi. Yeah, well, he went off. Was it last? Was it last week when he had like two home runs? Or the week before? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, that was Didi was my long my long shot pick for an, an AL MVP. Yeah. Didi, <laughs> but yeah. probably won't be. But good long shot pick. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> All right. Is uh anything else you want to tell the listeners before we end this? No, no. I had a great time. Yeah. And uh, how can they find you on um, social media? Uh, God, I hope they don't. Uh, I think I'm, I'm on, I'm on Twitter. I think <laughs> I'm on Twitter and I, I, you know, you I'm on Facebook. All so, right. uh, that's about it. Yeah. I'd like to personally thank you for coming on. This was a blast. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Man Cave Chronicles. Follow them on Twitter at the MCC podcast. We'll catch you next time.